Welcome to Master in Music. My name is Petronella Turin and today's episode is going to be amazing. It is Peter Powell or Peter Power that we have with us and he is an amazing guy. He's a musician by training and an entrepreneur by accident. And in today's episode, Peter is going to help us to go from the practice room to getting concerts and playing in front of audience. So we're going to go through how to make posters, how to reach out to people to saying that there is a concert going on, how to maybe be able to play in festivals, what are they looking at in the festival, how do they hire the musician. All of these great tips and tricks we're going to go through when the best time is to post on Facebook for example. And we're going to go through a little different business models that you can use. We're also going to talk about pedagogy, actually, because Peter started a school here called Team Academy, who is a new business school that is a bit different model. Like you have a mentor and you start a company and then you're building a company with the help of the school. So it's like learning by doing. Really, really interesting. So he's going to tell us all about it. And Peter has been very busy in his life. He's very young, in his 30s, but... He has managed to do a lot of things. He was a musician in Canada from the beginning, studying at the conservatorium. Then he came to Maastricht to study his master. And here he discovered the business life as a musician. And he got so involved with business that he couldn't stop thinking about it. So that's why he's a businessman today. And he has so much input to tell us about being, because he has one leg in the music world and one leg in the business world. So he's really, really good at combining those two. He has been working for Jasma Strish, for example, helping them producing concerts and events. And he's founded a guitar society here in Maastricht. And he did a lot of more things. But I think we're going to start the episode because I don't want to keep you waiting. I just want to say that he helped me so much. He was the guy who kicked me in the butt when I was in the practice room and made me go for all those concerts that I, that I really, really wanted to play. So I have him to thank for a lot of my concerts. So thank you so much, Peter. And also check out his blog. He has a really nice blog where you can read about all kinds of things, goal setting and yeah, a really good intellectual blog that is easy to understand. So check it out. And now I think we're going to start with Peter Power. So welcome to Master Music, Peter Powell. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. Good. I know that you've been working hard and been traveling a lot lately. Yes. Just came from Amsterdam and Utrecht. Yeah. So I actually wanted to start this episode with telling everyone how I met you. Because you were in the conservatorium and Mm -hmm. you had this lecture about how we can get concerts. You were a concert agent in the conservatorium back then. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I never experienced something like that in my life. And I was like, this guy is coming here telling, hi, if you want concert, I can help you. Mm. And that was like a heaven sent angel coming (laughs) for us. We were like, what? This is too good to be true. And then I I booked a meeting with you. Yeah. Yeah. And you told me how to get in the newspaper. Mm. And then you were like kicking my ass a little bit and said, okay, do it. You were really like pushing me and then I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And then I did it and it went really good. So I have so much to thank you actually for. Oh, well, I'm glad. So it was really awesome. 
So that's why also we want to have you in the podcast to make more people have this kind of experience of awesomeness. Kicking more people's asses. Yeah. Perfect. I mean, yeah, it's good to provoke a little bit. I mean, maybe people don't like it in the in the moment, but afterwards, I mean, it's so, so great. I mean, we need that. Yeah. Also, musicians, teachers, they kick us in the ass all the time. Yeah. Sometimes literally. Uh, not. <laughs> so you are Canadian, Australian and English. Yes, I am. Yeah. So you have a lot of nationalities in you. Yeah. And, I collect uh, passports. Yeah. It's a so hobby. It's, yeah, it's a hobby. Is it useful <laughs> to have so many passports? It's very useful. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's very useful. Uh, it's because my uh, parents are English and Australian, but I grew up in Canada. For instance, if I'm going to travel in Southeast Asia, I'll use my Australian. If I go to Brazil, for instance, my British one is really useful. Uh, my British one was useful in Europe until now. Well, now, well, it's still it's still working. I don't know how long it'll take them to figure something out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my Canadian is really great if I want to go to the to the states, for instance. Yeah, fly easier to travel in the states with a Canadian passport. And do you also have to like vote in all these countries or not? No, no. So. Um, the different countries have different rules around if you're allowed to vote in them and it's usually like citizenship plus a certain amount of time of residency there um but i can for instance with canada i believe get what's called an absentee ballot so i ask them to send me a ballot and i can mail it in mm-hmm. yeah but well, that's nice but it's a lot of i mean if I, i'm gonna vote i really have to like get into every party it's like a big work only for one country i think so i didn't vote in the netherlands yet because it's like oh it's so much to think about like also, when you don't speak the language and uh, I don't know, I'm not in that yet. Do you vote in the Netherlands now? Haven't voted, no. I've been a little bit, like I have friends who've been involved with it, so I've been involved that way. Yeah. But I, I've never, no, haven't voted. Probably should. <laughs> should probably be a responsible adult. <laughs> we'll do it next time. <laughs> next time, exactly. <laughs> There'll be another election. We we'll will make a new party called the Musician Party. <laughs> we will vote for ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, perfect. You've got an, a plan that cannot fail. We must do this. Yes, and we vote every time. <laughs> That'll be enough if we just all vote for ourselves. So you've been living in the Netherlands for how long now? Uh, a little over five and a half years. And how do you uh, like the Netherlands compared to Canada? Uh, there are pluses and minuses to both. Um, I think the nice thing about being here is everything is so close. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to travel around yeah. and go to different places. And there's a lot to see and a lot to enjoy. Um, also, Maastricht is nice because there's stuff happening, but it still feels like a village. Yeah, Canada, I miss Canada. I think that the people are maybe more open and friendly in general, mm-hmm. and especially when you first meet them. And people are just genuinely, surprisingly nice in Canada. And also it's where I grew up for, you know, almost a bit over 10 years of my life. So it feels like home a bit. Um, the thing I don't miss is the winter. They suck mm-hmm. so much. I really hate them. Uh, minus minus 30 is just not fun. No, I, I kind of always thought Canada, I thought of it like a big Sweden like Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> because you have pretty much the same. You also have the mooses. Yeah. You have the skiing sport, but it's just everything is much bigger. Yeah, fair enough. Probably. I feel like Canadians people... might take offense to that. They might say that Sweden is small Canada. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I like it. I mean, we have a lot of common, in, except for we only speak one language in our country, like Swedish. And you also, do you speak French as well? or? I can swear in French. Oh, that's good. I, I, I can <laughs> speak a little bit of French and I can understand. Yeah. But uh, I never I never became fluent in French because I lived in Montreal 
when I studied and Montreal is bilingual, but basically if you try to speak French, they're just going to reply in English because yeah. if your French sucks, they'll just not even give you a chance. <laughs> okay. So I never got a chance to practice it. Okay, I understand. But uh, Paris is only three hours away. No? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my aunt lives there. <laughs> and Belgium is uh, a half an hour or maybe 15 minutes to be saying. Yeah, yeah, if I was motivated. But, <laughs> but the thing is, I mean, so I speak Dutch fluently because I oh, used yeah. to live here as a kid. Mm-hmm. That helps. But the thing with French is I just don't like it that much as a language. All the, the genders and the, the grammar and all the letters that are written but not pronounced, yeah. I just can't be bothered. It's a bit old-fashioned language because of the feminine and all these genders in, in the language. But I feel it's more, it's like, it sounds like the accent for me is a little bit like a person from Texas, you know? Speaking English, like, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> This, have you ever had a Quebecois French accent? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Okay, no. that, Quebecois French, like French-Canadian French, that is like the, the Alabama, you know, accent yeah. of French-speaking. Okay. It's really special. We have French, to. like if you if you go to France and you speak with a Quebecois accent, they will laugh at you. Yeah, they will laugh at me anyway. Uh, <laughs> they already did when I was in Paris. <laughs> Are you, do you speak French? Yeah, a little bit. Like I studied in um, uh, in Liège, so I was forced. Yeah, uh, I tried to learn it, but the, the pedagogic that they used in in Liège was very old fashioned. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna learn this in Sweden. I was thinking like I would learn it so much faster if you just had a pedagogic method that was not raping me with France. That was like, I'm going to rape you with this language until you learn it. And I was like, oh. Well, I, I actually won a prize for excellence in French studies oh. when I was in university. Mm-hmm. I still can't speak French <laughs> because of this method where you just had to memorize nouns and yeah. verbs and conjugations. And, and I could do that fine, but that doesn't mean that you can actually speak it. Apparently, the best way to learn language is to sit down with somebody who speaks it fluently and is a little bit OCD. Oh, yeah. And they should correct you immediately as, as soon as you say something wrong, and then you should immediately repeat it the correct way. Yep. And if you do like an hour a day for however long, this will this is the fastest way to learn it. Yeah, I, will, I have to try it with my Dutch, because it's like a five-year-old right now. <laughs> oh, I got motivated when you say you speak fluent and everything. I, I lived here as a kid, it. though. Okay, so you have I had cheated. some... Yeah. yeah, I lived here from when I was six until when I was 12, so it's... Uh, when I came back here a couple of years ago, I really had this feeling of like uh, the words were somewhere in the back of my brain and they mm-hmm. started to come forwards and I didn't have to take lessons or anything. Well, that's really nice. And why were you living here when you were a kid? Because uh, my dad got a job here. Mm-hmm. Well, as uh, what? As head of a marketing par- department for Sony Europe in Amsterdam. Okay. So you lived in Amsterdam then? I lived in Alkmaar. Okay. Just Alkmaar. In north yeah. Amsterdam. And then you came back here for doing studies? Yeah. So I finished my bachelor's in Montreal. And I knew that... You're bachelor in guitar. Bachelor in guitar, guitar performance. Guitar yes, player. I am. I was yeah. a guitar, guitarist. I don't play anymore. I have a very good quote from you that says... Uh, what was it? It was... I have to... Tr- uh, yeah. Musician by training and entrepreneur by accident. Yes. I'm I think it's the most lovely, uh, like, word I, um, sentence I saw. I was like, awesome. That's like, awesome that someone can describe you so perfectly. It was really cool. Yeah, well... I did write it myself. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so I studied in Montreal, did my bachelor's and I'd been there for a couple of years and I knew I wanted to go somewhere else for a while. And I figured, okay, I've got a British passport, so I should come to Europe where I looked at guitar teachers that I potentially wanted to study with. And by then I already had a bit of an inkling that I was not going to play guitar as a career. Mm-hmm. I'd already started a little mini management agency and uh, I applied to Cologne 
Lugano and Maastricht because of the teachers and got accepted in Maastricht and got waitlisted in Lugano. So I figured, okay, let's go. Maastricht, it's cheap tuition compared yeah. to North America. It meant I didn't have to pay back my student loan yet. Mm. And I figured, oh, I'll come for two years and then we'll go back to Canada. Yeah. And somehow we're still here. Yeah. Because stuck in the mud. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, there were just opportunities that came up even yeah. during my master's and then those just kind of snowballed. Yeah. And um, what was it that made you uh, realize that you maybe would go another part and be a guitarist only? Actually, that happened quite early in my bachelor's when I saw my professor, who is maybe one of the most fantastic guitarists ever to come out of Canada, who has zero natural business sense and he was struggling to get gigs. Yeah. And it made me realize that this mindset of like, oh, you just have to be a really good musician and then you'll get hired. And as long as you have a degree, then you'll get hired. It made me realize that it completely is not the case. Yeah. Uh, and then when I started working, I actually started my management company with him first. I offered to manage him uh, as kind of a test case. And over the four years I did that, I watched the fees go down like every year that oh, yeah, they would pay yeah. musicians. Mm. Um, it just dropped by a couple hundred euros each year. And that made me realize this is not a, unless I'm I'm very passionate about just the playing itself. This is not an industry I want to be in, um, or at least not performing. And then at the same time, I discovered I was quite good at organizing things mm-hmm. and planning things. And I had a really fantastic professor in university who introduced me to the whole concept of marketing. And I started taking business courses. And then when I got here, I basically had a year of saying yes to every project that came just because I wanted to try lots of different things. Mm-hmm. And that kind of snowballed into what I'm doing now. So you did uh, say yes to every organizing marketing project or Anything. everything. Okay. So I started my own concert series, yeah. the Guitar Society. I organized a festival for art, music and yeah. food. I organized the Chamber Music Festival at the conservatory, um, organized class concerts, um, I was on some kind of recommendation board for Zout where students recommended the direction, uh, the directors of where, what potential things they could think about doing and, and they completely ignored us. Mm. Uh, so just anything that people offered me that I had a chance to do, I would say yes to. And um, just just to f- kind of figure out what do I, what do I want to do? What can I do? It's like this movie with the guy who, who can only say yes, you know? Yeah. Yes, man, yeah. Yeah. It's not the most healthy way to live when you get really busy but it was a very good experience how do you start a festival like if you come like a student to a new country i mean sort of new how do you like take it from an idea to actually doing it (laughs) you just do it (laughs) it sounds really stupid but you do Uh, i think people spend far too much time making plans yeah the guitar society for instance the way that started and and it never grew to anything really big at its peak, we had sort of a hundred people per concert showing up, mm-hmm. which is pretty decent for an organization with zero funding and me running everything myself. Yeah. Um, but the way it started is we've got one of the best guitarists in Europe teaching here in Maastricht. We've got some incredible students and there's no concert series in town. That's crazy. So I figured, okay, we'll start something. So um, I asked the conservatory if I could use the concert hall. Uh, for free and they said yes very generously and then I also asked did they have any money for master classes for the guitar class and they said yes again and then I found um, a really good guitarist in Paris who I knew who is good friends with Carlo the guitar teacher mm-hmm. here and I paid him with the master class fee that I got to also do a concert yeah and then kind of built it out from there and the way it started I think first it was a meeting with 
10, 20 guitarists who are all saying, yeah, this is great, we should totally do it. Mm. And gradually people sort of drop off and, and it becomes less of a priority. And so then I had the choice, okay, we've got the person coming, we've got the concert hall, everything set up. Um, I might as well just keep on doing it myself. Yeah. And I think it starts with that first, you know, what's the very first thing you need to do? Take that first step, mm-hmm. then take the next step, then take the next. Don't plan you know, this massive, huge thing and try to get funding and all this stuff. That's so for later. A small ambitions. And I mean, what you did is practically you checked if there was an interest for you. Like, uh, okay, is someone more than me interested in this? Yeah. Okay, there is an interest. Okay, let's do it. Yeah, well, exactly. That's that's why I think it worked so well, because I had 30 guitarists studying here who I knew would come to these concerts. Yeah, and there was also Master Masterclass uh, Carrot. And, exactly. Yeah. yeah, they'd come to the Masterclass, and then because they had the Masterclass, they'd often want to come to the concert as well. And, I mean, it was kind of a win-win situation, because the teacher get to play a concert, and the students get uh, lessons. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. It worked really well. And, and the, I mean, I did have big aspirations. I did have, a. this is another thing. There's, so I think you need to have a big vision when you're seeking to start something because it motivates you and mm-hmm. it also motivates other people. One of the fastest ways to get other people wanting to help you is to say, I've got this dream. Do you want to help me build mm-hmm. this dream? Because people yeah. love big dreams. Yeah. Uh, but don't try to build the final product at okay. the very beginning yeah. because you'll just procrastinate and never start because it's so big that it makes you incapable of beginning. So instead what you should do is, uh, and we do this a lot more now with the stuff that I'm doing, you create a mini version of what you're planning on doing and you test it out and Mm -hmm. then you make it a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, eventually growing towards that dream that you want to create. That's a really good advice, I think. Because people, I don't know, like sometimes when people start training, you see these kind of tendencies that they want to be like, beach 2019, I'm going to be the most fittest person. And then they're like starting out with 10 kilometers and then they have a lot of training pain and they never run again. This for me with, with exercising was a, a thing that I realized where, so I grew up working on a farm and you, that means that I was very fit and I didn't mm-hmm. have to ever think about exercising and I could eat whatever I wanted. And then when I started studying university, in university, that stopped. And then all of a sudden I had to start thinking about exercising and I would you know Google Olympic gymnasts mm-hmm. uh, exercise routine or Olympic swimmer exercise routine. Mm-hmm. And I would make it so difficult to just start exercising because I'd have to go to the gym and have to look at my routine that that gave my brain enough time to argue with myself and then decide, I don't want to do it. Mm. And so the routine that I have now is maybe not the best exercise routine you can have, but it's simple enough for me to just be able to do it consistently. I think the the principle of something that's, this is a blog post that's still in my brain, but there's the objective best And then there's what I would call the pragmatic best. Mm -hmm. So the pragmatic best is the one that you're most likely to implement. The objective best is the one that all the experts say is the thing you should do. And the pragmatic best differs from person to person. And so when you're starting a project, it's the same thing. Okay, so what's the pragmatic best way to start this rather than the objective best way? Yeah. So what do you do now? What's your training program? Can we hear it? Yes. Um, So I took a sharp left out of the world of music. I am now setting up a university for entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. It's called Team Academy. Uh, it's a program that's existed all over the world for about 25 years in different forms. There are bachelor programs in Amsterdam and Spain, and we decided to bring that bachelor program to this region because we think it could really benefit from it. And how the program works is you learn business, uh, so you get a Bachelor of Business Administration, but rather than learning by memorizing, you learn by actually doing. So in the very first year, you start a real business, 
and everything that you learn, you apply to your business and you're graded on how well you apply it, not how well you memorize the information that the teacher provided. Mm -hmm. And then the information that we give the students to learn and to apply, that's coming from experts in the field who teach the classes who are currently doing the thing that they're teaching. So they're making sure that the information they're sharing with the students is up to date. I really like this method. I, I saw a video about it on Facebook and I was like, oh my God, finally some uh, refreshment in the education system, yeah. something that actually works and you cut all the bullshit out. Yeah. Because it's like we have this method of teaching people and we've been doing it for so long and I feel like the so much happened in science since we built these kind of methods that we use in the universities. So it's so out of date. So I was yeah. really happy when I saw it. I was like, oh my God, that's so fresh. It's not even the, the developments in science that's important, but it's the developments in society. The way society runs is no longer the same as it used to 100 years ago. And if you look at every, almost every other industry, maybe with the exception of classical music, <laughs> and you look at the difference between that industry now and 100 years ago, they look nothing alike. If you look at a picture of a classroom, from 1919 and then look at a picture of a classroom from 2019, those places look almost identical. Mm. One picture is black and white and the other one's in color. Yeah. But that tells you that something is, is being done incorrectly because I, the world looks so different. I asked a business student from the business academy here and I asked her, like, can you give me a tip of a book that I can read about business and marketing because I want to become better at it? And she's like, no, there's no use because all of them, the moment they are published, they are already out of date, she said. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, not, I wouldn't agree entirely with that, but yeah, the, the problem with the school curriculum, especially the books they use in school, is that is the case that it takes 10 or 20 years to filter into the curriculum. I mean, it depends. Sometimes it's faster. Um, but because it has to be based on really hardcore academic research and the world just changes mm -hmm. far faster than that. But also I think the reason that the books are out of date is not because the books aren't available. It's because the school does not have an incentive to make sure the material is entirely up to date. Yeah. So the school, for the most part, as far as I understand it, gets checked up on, like the government checks on two things for universities. What is your acceptance criteria and what is your grading criteria? And they'll check the students' grades, they'll do audits, yeah. and they'll check the papers and they'll see, okay, would we have graded it about the same? Yes or no? And so that is the school's criteria for success. That's how they get their money. That's how mm -hmm. they get to keep on accepting students. Um, of course, they also have to make themselves look very attractive to students, but that's that's quite easy or relatively easy because students don't actually really know a lot of the time how you can judge if a school is good or not. Okay. So there is no intrinsic motivation for the organization, the school, to then make sure that their material is really absolutely cutting edge and up to date because if the student graduates and gets the job that they want or doesn't, it doesn't make that much of a difference. Of course, for their marketing campaign, they want to have a really nice average where they say like this, our students get an average pay of this when they graduate. But as long as you have a couple of people really high up on that scale, then it doesn't really matter that you have a lot of, lot of people lower down. And the best example, actually, of this is, unfortunately, the conservatory here in Maastricht. There was some research that Zout did, and they looked at what the average pay of well, five years after graduation. Thinking, yeah, <laughs> and it's something really like less than 20,000, like 18,000 euros yeah. a year. I think you can make that when working in McDonald's. That's crazy. And that yeah. tells you that that curriculum is not doing the job it's supposed to do. Mm. And the teachers aren't even aware of this. Or some, most of the teachers aren't even aware of this. Why? Because they're told by the school, 
do the grading correctly. That's what matters. Fit within the accreditation criteria, that's the thing you must optimize for, rather than optimize for your students to become successes in the career that they choose to pursue. Yeah. And I, I get why it's like that, but at the same time, it's also like, it makes me very, very angry. It, it kind of feels like the school is uh, there for the school and not for the students. Like yeah. that's always what I felt when I went to different schools that I was there just to fill the teacher's uh, payroll. Yeah. It was not for me. Like no one cares what I wanted to learn or what I needed to learn, actually. Like I could have a big hole in my uh, learning, like development, but they never filled that up because it didn't matter for the grade. Because yeah. I always had very good grades, but... What does it matter? What, what am I going to use them for if I cannot uh, fulfill my weaknesses? I yeah. always, a student need to challenge their weaknesses in order to be good and everyone has different weaknesses, I mean. Yeah, exactly. I, and and the I think the reason a lot of the time, I mean, there are some people who work at large institutions who are just incredibly selfish. But for the most part, these teachers are just trying to do their job. They usually get paid less than they should be. They don't get paid as many hours as they put in. So they're just kind of trying to survive. And there's no system by which they can check that they're actually helping you in your career. Mm -hmm. And this is the big issue with education. And this is also what we're trying to solve with Team Academy, where, uh, and this is an issue with politics as well, where you don't have an effective feedback loop. So the way you learn anything or you grow as a person or as an organization is through a feedback loop. So something happens and then you need to take the time to observe what has happened, observe the results, and then ask, okay, what went well and what do we need to do differently? Yeah. With most schools they don't have any mechanism for checking wait are we first of all educating people for the thing that we're telling them we're educating them for and second of all are we providing them with the tools necessary to succeed mm. in that career that they choose and so with team academy for instance what we're aiming to do is every module that we have we have conversations with the students to see how did how relevant was this knowledge for your business mm. uh, they get a survey every semester they get a survey we have a conversation with them every year after the program, we do a survey, and then five years afterwards, we do another one. Mm -hmm. We get in touch and we say, "Okay, did you know what? What would you have done differently? What would you change? What did you miss?" Yeah. And then, together with Amsterdam, there's also a Team Academy in Romania and Peru and South Africa. We work together with. Mm -hmm. uh, together with them, we gather all this feedback and we say, "Okay, how can we share this knowledge to constantly improve the program so that it remains relevant?" Yeah, and also um, prevent the disaster before they come. Like you don't have to do the same mistake as the, another team academy because you can learn from them. Yeah, exactly. And you have this kind of a little bit more mentor mentor program. Yeah. And it's if in my opinion it feels very like reality because you also have a a meeting with your boss if you if you work in a company where you discuss your paycheck and you get the evaluation. Mm -hmm. So it's more realistic to what's coming in the future. And I mean, it's really important, like when you were really small, you had this kind of developing um, conversations with your teacher and your parents, sort of. Yeah. And that's really uh, important, I think. Yeah, well, the mentorship thing comes from, so the, the models that we're, that we're looking at as far as education goes, there are a couple of them. The, the learning by doing is a big thing. Um, so this is actually based on theories by Immanuel Kant, where he talks about, you can you can learn the theory of a thing and then the application of the theory mm -hmm. and most educations are formed around learning the theory and we really want to focus on the application and then on top of that not only learning about the application but actually doing it because that's very different uh, the mentoring thing comes more from what you saw in the renaissance where you have these 
ateliers of artists mm. and you would apprentice underneath an artist and that person would help you reach the level that he was at and it's this personal relationship and the personal side of it is just as important as the professional side where it's someone that you want to kind of you want to meet their expectations and on top of that what happens then and this is another kind of theory that we're working off is you educate for mastery rather than for average so most educations educate for an average they want everybody to get an average of a b plus within that course and then it's a success now if you get a b plus in every maths class that means that 20 to 30% of that information that you're supposed to learn, mm. you didn't learn. Yeah. And that ignorance compounds every year. So you get a B plus the first year, maybe the second year you get a B. And each year it gets harder and harder to catch up because there's more and more information that you weren't able to learn. Mm. So when you have a more mentorship type relationship, what happens is the student goes to the mentor and said, hey, I did that thing that you told me to do. This and this worked and this didn't. And the mentor can say, oh, that's because you didn't understand this and maybe you need to think about this. And then they keep on going back to that topic, revisiting yeah. it until they've mastered the topic. Yeah. And also you can see the benefits of uh, listening to the master baby yeah. uh, right away. And especially when you build a company, it's like try, trying and error a lot. Yeah. yeah. Because there is no, it's a little bit like anything can happen. Like you can be a poor guy starting Spotify yeah. and then become one of the richest ones. Yeah. Uh, or the opposite, you can be rich and lose all your money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anything can happen. And the only way you find out is actually by, by doing it. And this has, for me, been the kind of adventure with the other things that I've done, but especially Team Academy, where the execution never looks like the plan. Yeah. And every time you execute, you learn a whole pile of new things that, you know, anybody looking from the outside in goes, oh, you should do this, this and this. But when you've actually done it, you know, actually, that doesn't work. It sounds like a really good idea. There are all these things that sound like really good ideas, but for whatever reason, they might not actually work in practice, yeah. which is why like continuously executing and what you were talking about before, starting small and then iterating and adjusting and improving constantly enables you to learn far better than taking a long time to write the perfect plan, which is the way school teaches mm. it, and then trying to launch that one perfect plan. Yeah, yeah. And then usually either never even starting because it's so overwhelming or starting and then failing and then feeling terrible because you go oh man i'm a terrible person i can't even plan properly yeah well that's because you went way too big and you never tried to see what it was actually like in the real world is that like the common uh, mistake that people do you think in company uh, building or entrepreneurship that they start too big or that they don't that they feel bad when they fail I think both those things are, yeah. So so the the common mistake that I think, and even we have made this with Team Academy as well, looking back, is starting with the idea that they have the perfect idea, wanting to launch the perfect idea and trying to do it all at once. Mm -hmm. And the reasons for that can be fear of failure. I think that's a huge thing. So once again, like, I mean, in general, as humans, we're kind of averse to failing. We don't like failing because... We want to be part of the group, and if we fail, then the group might reject us. It's yeah. kind of embedded into our psychology. And also school teaches you that failure is the worst thing that can happen. Mm. And we're not really taught how to handle failure. Like when you fail, what do you do with that? Yeah. So I think, yeah, those those things are definitely common mistakes that you see in with starting entrepreneurs. I think maybe what connects it all, the biggest the, the, the sort of overarching theme there is being focused on the goal rather than the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you look at the whole thing of starting a business as just a learning process, then it doesn't matter if you fail because you learn something. Yeah. 
And if you look at it as a learning process, then the goal is to learn as much as possible, as quick as possible. So that means you should launch a lot. You should put lots of things into the world one step at a time because that enables you to continually learn. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, learning happens when you do something. There's a reaction to that thing that you've done. You observe the reaction and then you ask yourself, what can I learn from this? Yeah. That feedback loop again. Yeah, it's very, um, I mean, it's very much what I learn when I do mental training. Yeah. That you go and look at where is the goal and then you go back, like, how do I get there? Like how you go like backwards. Yeah. So you start with a goal and then, okay, I want to launch this one. And then you go back all the steps until yeah. you can start actually something. So yeah, but then what you have to do, the thing that you have to embed in those steps is the feedback loop. Yeah. So, okay, you've got your goal. First, you you mentioned this before as well. First, you validate. Is the thing that you're trying to create actually interesting for people? Mm. Is the thing that you're trying to do actually helpful for you? So so what are you optimizing for? And is the thing that you're trying to do going to be um, helping you achieve that thing you're optimizing for? Then along the way, you constantly try to figure out, is this working? Is this working? Is this working? And the thing that I think people, especially in the music world, avoid a lot mm. is asking other people. Yeah. Everybody's so afraid of each other's opinion and what other people think about them because yeah. music can be such a personal thing. But And entrepreneurs do this a lot as well where people, and, and this is again connected to the way school teaches you. So, so school teaches you that the most important thing is to have a good idea. Mm. So to have a really nice idea for your paper and then to write it, to understand a concept really well have your own ideas about it and and i think when you launch a business the idea is like five percent of that process 95 percent of it is is the execution and like the, i happens, heard about this dream doer doer um i saw it somewhere like that you're a dream doer that you're a five percent dreamer and then a 95 percent doer yeah <laughs> yeah that's what you have to be but so what often happens is people come up with an idea which they think is great mm-hmm. And they create it all inside their head and they never check it with the real world. And then they go and talk to their friends and they say, what do you think about this? And their friends aren't going to tell them, well, it sucks because they still want to be friends with them. And (laughs) so then they don't get any honest feedback and they've put all this time and energy into it. And that's how you end up losing all your money Mm. when trying to start a business. And who who is giving you feedback? Like uh, what kind of persons do you have like uh, in the loop? Because I mean, it's also if I go to someone who hates uh, cello and say, I have this great idea about cello music then of course they are going to hate it. I mean, it has to be this, the, a good person, I guess, who you yes, get so feedback the people from. you want to go to are people who are doing a similar kind of thing to what you want to do, people who you hope are going to buy or participate or consume the thing that you're making, mm-hmm. or people that are connected in some way with the thing that you're trying to do and are an expert on those topics. So for us, uh, what that looks like, uh, we've got a couple different feedback loops kind of built into our process even now. The first most common one is as a team, every time we do something, we sit down and we do what's called the post Motorola. It's a a review from Motorola company Mm -hmm. and it's four questions. The first is what happened, what went well. The second one is what went less well. Then what did we learn? And then what are we going to do different next time? Mm. And we do it religiously. Every workshop that we run, every important meeting that we have, we go through it. And then the next time we have a similar kind of thing, we go over our notes from the last time and we go, oh yeah. We have to make sure we do this differently next time. Yeah. Um, and we put this on, we've got a shared workspace that we use. So we capture that learning from the feedback loop. So that's the first one that we use, the people around us. Then there's the students or the potential students. So is this something that you're interested in? Why would you go? Why would you not go? Also the parents are very important. So those are the clients. Then we talk to the other team academies. Hey, we're thinking of launching this new product. So we're, for instance, we're launching a summer coding camp right mm-hmm. now. Um, have you guys thought of it? 
would people at your team academy be interested, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, we talk to experts in the, the field. So we've been talking to different investors and different financial advisors and different banks. And of course, the goal in part is to see if they'd be interested in investing, in investing. But the, one of the things we also get out of those conversations, because the way we frame the conversations, is their thoughts on what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, and what do they say? Well, Team Academy, we, we knew this when we started. It's not an interesting business to invest in. Okay. Because even though it's private and it's, it's expensive, mm-hmm. we accept 15 students every year. Yeah. And the program is highly customized to the student. So okay. our profit margin is tiny. Every year we make about, I think, between 3 and 5% profit. And it's not scalable. We've specifically designed it not to mm. be scalable. So if we want to uh, have more students every year, then what happens is we go and we start another hub. Uh, we don't accept more students into the team. So if we were to expect, accept more students into the team, our profit margin would go up because mm-hmm. it costs us just as much to deliver the course, but the quality goes down. And so we intentionally said, okay, we're not going to start this business to make a lot of money. We have to make enough money to survive and to pay ourselves a salary. But if our primary motivation when starting an educational institution is making money, then the education quality is going to suffer eventually. Yeah. That's the wrong motivation. But maybe if you educate really good uh, people with entrepreneurs and company, maybe they will be willing to invest in the academy as a payback for what they learn. Yeah, but you have to start yeah. first yeah. to get to that point. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, <laughs> and, the and there are other ways that we're looking at, at um, turning this into more than just a school. So we want to rethink the whole tuition model, mm. for instance, where seeing if we can create an investment fund where people would invest in the student and not in the business idea. So at the beginning of the intake process, we'd have basically a panel who get a chance to sit and chat with the students. And if they see really high potential candidates, they'd say, okay, we're going to pay for your tuition. Uh, In exchange, the Mm. fund would get an ownership percentage of that company so that the fund can continue to Yeah, you have stakeholders already. Yeah, exactly. And um, how do you talk, like, do you have any good tips on how to sell something to a bank or to a company? Like, how do you talk to them in a good way? Do you have, like, a tip how to present good? I I can tell you about presenting to customers. I'm not great at talking to banks and I'm better at talking to investors. Banks, I'm not a big fan just because, in my very biased personal opinion, a lot of people... And this isn't everyone, but a lot of people who work in banks think they know a lot and have never done anything. Mm. And so they think the most important thing is the plan and you make a great plan and you stick to that plan and you're going to succeed. So they judge your company on the basis of your business plan. And for us, we're just not interesting to invest in at the moment because it's never going to be a multi-million dollar business. Mm. not supposed to be. So that's frustrating because we're saying, okay, this is something that the region needs. Like this is something that's going to be really, really positive. In general, eventually it's going to result in more businesses in the area, which is going to mm. be better for you guys as well. But then of course, because they're bankers and I understand they have to do a job, they say, okay, that's not interesting for us. So to them, I'm not very good at selling. To, to investors maybe and to potential clients, the way we do the selling, uh, the tips that I would give are sell the big vision and then explain to people how you're going to get there. So the first thing we want to tell them is, this is how the world is going to change if I make this happen. And then you want to tell them this is what we're going to do to get there. And then you want to tell them this is what you get out of it. This Mm -hmm. is how your life is going to be better if you participate. So if I wanted to sell a concept, for example, Mm -hmm. what would you uh, give me as an... Can you do an example? I'm sure you sold a lot of concerts. Yeah. You also bought them when you were working in Just Maastricht. I Mm -hmm. guess you were buying a lot of artists to come here to Maastricht and play. Like, um, What was the best presentation you saw? Like, What did they do? So you're talking about an artist selling to a concert producer? 
Yeah, yeah. Or an that's, artist talking to audiences. No, to the producer who makes the concert. Um, that's a little bit different than, than selling to an audience. In the end, the concert producer has to like what you're doing, of course, mm -hmm. but what they want to know is how many tickets are you going to sell. Yeah. Because sure, they're getting funding, but every ticket they don't sell is money that leaves their pocket. So mm. it's uh, more risk for them. The way we would do it at Jasper Stricht is... For the most part, it would be artists that we were already interested in and had an mm. eye on, which means like you have to have people, you have to be active. Yeah. You have to be out there, you have to be doing things, we have to be able to find you. Then we'd look at that artist that'd be interested in booking and we'd look at their social, their social media mm -hmm. and their YouTube views and all of this stuff. Yeah. And that gives us a sense of, okay, how many people are interested in this person? And also we'd look at their promotion material, what they have. Like if you don't have good pictures, we can't sell that concert no matter mm. how good your music is because I got to post stuff on social media to promote it we got to make a poster mm. you know and then on the basis of that we would maybe talk to other organizations that have booked the artist before and mm. see how yeah. did the ticket sales go and then we'd make the choice sometimes we get emails from artists proposing concerts and then what we want to know is very clearly like give us the information very clearly who are you what's the interesting thing that you're doing so do you have a cd release do you have mm. a really cool new project is there something uh, interesting how is that gonna like how are you gonna sell that yeah why is that an interesting thing for us to buy and then last of all what gives you credibility a lot of the time and this drives me nuts a lot of the time bios begin with blah 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 started playing this instrument at the age of three and then they studied with this person and had master classes with this person and won this competition mm. we don't care no because Everybody started playing at the age of three nowadays. Yeah. Everybody's had lessons with fantastic, amazing people and everybody's won competitions. Yeah. So unless you've won like an incredible mind, like if you, if you won the Thelonious Monk competition in the jazz mm -hmm. world, if you won the Chopin competition in the classical world, that's good to know. Yeah. Throw that out there. Uh, but for the rest, that's something you can mention later on to build credibility. What you want to grab people with is this is the really amazing thing that I'm doing this mm -hmm. is why you should be excited about me. So something special about them that makes them special. And then to maybe not write a traditional CV. Like. Don't write traditional CVs. They're the worst. Definitely not. And, <laughs> and please include links to videos yeah. and recordings. So making it easy and accessible. And yeah. Uh, showing off the photos maybe and yeah well we want to see do you have material that we can use to sell you yeah because this is the big shift that's happened in the last 20 years or so where in the past the way you sold the concert is you printed a bio in the newspaper or an interview or whatever and people said mm. oh well this sounds like this could be a good concert because they had for the most part unless they were really famous and had a record contract they had no other way of knowing if it was going to be good or not yeah well nowadays what happens as soon as you see an ad for a concert well you go on youtube yeah and you listen to the music and if you like the music, you go to the concert. And, you know, unless you're already a fan and your friends invite you. For the most part, that's how you do it. So for us, what that means is the primary way that we convince people to come to our concerts is through video um, and then a little bit audio as well. And if you don't have any video or audio, we can't sell your concert. Yeah, so it's good to be on YouTube. Yes, it's, YouTube good, to be, channel. it's good to be on YouTube. Have a YouTube channel. Make sure that it looks and sounds good yeah. as well. So good. Um, do you have any tips on what to use to make a good video? Maybe you don't do, do them yourself anymore. I don't do so much <laughs> video. Um, but you can, you can nowadays, so the audio side is more complicated, but the video side, you can get a lot of mileage out of an, an iPhone. And do you know what a Dremel is? Uh, I think it's... It's this little yeah, handheld yeah. thing that has a gyroscope, like a motor-powered gyroscope in it yeah. that stabilizes it. Yeah. We've used that to shoot promo videos for lots of stuff. And uh, it, it looks great. 
And how do you make a good poster? Because Jasmine's sister had really good posters. Keep it simple. Yeah. Keep the information minimal. So this relates to how you, you have to kind of be conscious of how you want the customer to travel towards going to that concert. So what's the steps they're going to take before they actually buy that ticket? Yeah. And you have to plan it out. For, so for us, all the marketing activities with Jasmine's sister and also the other organizations I worked with with marketing was always trying to get people to our website. Yeah. And then once they're on the website, we always wanted to make it like maximum two clicks away from buying a ticket. Yeah. So with the poster, our goal with the poster is not to inform people about everything they need to know about the concert. Our goal is to tell them, hey, this is happening. Because guess what? If you see a really cool poster, what's the first thing you do? You Google it. Yeah. And then you click on the website. Mm -hmm. So we're assuming people are already going to look at the website. So what we did is we took the ticket prices off. We took the time off. Uh, we took as much information off the poster that we possibly could. Just gave them the the location, the name of the artist, and the date. Yeah. And then Jasmine Snicht logo in big. And this is important. And then uh, this is, of course, talking about branding. But what we made sure is that all the posters looked similar. Yeah. So what a lot of concert series will do is just take the image that the artist sent them. And, uh, and a lot of artists do this mm. as well. Every time the image is different. And then they throw it up there. And they might put their logo in small, maybe in the corner or maybe on top. So what we did is we put a white frame around it. We put the Jasmine Snicht logo big in the middle on the top and then we take the artist photos and we put kind of a filter over them and we put the same kind of colors and shapes in there so that all posters are variations on the same kind of theme and what this means is that people recognize us so maybe they don't know the artist but they've been to three jasmine swift concerts that they like and they see a jasmine swift poster Mm. and they're like ah cool i love jasmine swift maybe i'll go to that concert it's like it becomes like a prophecy you know every time you see the orange you're like I like it. You know? Yeah, exactly. And and it creates familiarity. Mm-hmm. So the core of, I think, for me, modern marketing is about building a relationship. And if you look different every time I saw you, that'd be super confusing. I wouldn't know how I was supposed to interact with you. So you can have different makeup on, you can wear different clothes, yeah. but you still have to look like roughly the same person. Yeah. And the same thing goes with, with marketing. It's really smart. I never thought about it. It's really good uh, good tips. I'm going to listen to this yeah. again. Yeah, well, this is, this <laughs> is what branding is about. Yeah. Branding is about how do you create uh, an identity that people that's consistent, that people understand and want to connect to. Mm-hmm. And this is important when you do a YouTube channel as well. I mean, yeah, everything you do should kind of fit within a brand. Mm-hmm. So that starts with saying, who am I? The core elements of your brand are your mission, your vision and your core values. So who am I and what do I care about? And how can I express that on all the different ways that I'm doing things? So where do you uh, put the posters? That's the next step, I guess. Where do you put them? Yeah, where do you put them? Wherever they'll let you. Okay. As many places as possible. Uh, You didn't hire another company to put it up or you did it yourselves? No, I I did it first myself. I mapped out all the locations and then Mm. I paid students to do it. But actually, to be honest, like my advice to musicians in general is don't do posters. Social media. Out of date, yeah. Yeah, the thing with posters is... And the reason we still do it with Jasmine Safe, for instance, is we think it works, but we're not sure. Mm. The great thing with social media advertising and with any kind of digital advertising is you can immediately see, oh, this ad isn't working. It's wasting my money. Stop. Mm. And if you look at our marketing budgets with Jasmine Safe, the majority of our audiences come from digital and the majority of our costs per, per audience member brought in was physical. So it costs mm. us a lot per audience member brought in and we don't even know how well it's working. 
And it's not good for the environment either. And it's not good for the environment, no. It's important to think about. Giving money to Facebook probably isn't good for the world either, (laughs) but that's a whole different discussion. (laughs) Well, so Facebook is a tool that you use to marketing and Instagram, Mm -hmm. I guess. Do you also use something on LinkedIn? Because they also have a lot of things I saw. Yeah, it depends on what you're marketing, what you're, who you you're marketing to. If you do a concert. To. So if you're a musician, yeah. I would use Facebook and Instagram. Facebook and Instagram. And YouTube if you want. And when is the best day to post? It depends. Depends mm-hmm. on where you are. Depends on who your audience is. Okay. In general, what we've seen in this region, and for the most part in Northwestern Europe, is uh, Sundays and Mondays are the best. Mm-hmm. Between three and nine in the afternoon slash evening. Okay. Uh, the worst time is Friday evening and afternoon and Saturday all day yeah. because people are doing things and they're not looking at their phones or their computers. Yeah. And then the other days it kind of varies. In general, you like just think of the activity of the people who are going to be coming to your Facebook page or going mm-hmm. on Facebook. Most of them are probably going to have a job or be in school. And that means probably from nine till three at least they'll be focused on working. From three onwards, they're probably a little bit distracted and they're starting to think mm-hmm. about going home and they might go on Facebook a little bit. And then after nine, a lot of people are starting to go to bed. Now, if you're marketing to, say, students because you have an electronic music festival, Mm -hmm. probably you can then post later at night because they might be up later. It's uh, funny because a lot of podcasters that I listen to, they release new episodes on Fridays in Sweden. Uh, Yeah. And I was like, Friday? My, My experience is that Friday is like dead. So I really try not to post. Sometimes I do because I have to, but not so much on Fridays. But this is the, what you're describing now is exactly what you should do. Test it. That's the cool thing with social media. You can find out what works and what doesn't. So for instance, in Spain, posting later works better. Yeah. Because Spanish people stay up ridiculously late. (laughs) They sleep in the day. Yeah. So we have the steps of uh, when you make a concert, first you try to uh, figure out who you are selling the concert to, what you want to play. You make a nice poster or you make a nice photo that you put on your event on Facebook that Mm -hmm. you do an advertising for and maybe on Instagram. And um, what happens next, like ticket sales? How expensive can you be when you sell tickets? Depends on how good you are. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I'm going to actually jump back to that process. So the, mm. the, the way that process goes is it starts a lot sooner than that when you want to think about marketing. So you start with who am I, uh, you know, the, the yeah. brand thing, and then you go to who am I selling to? Yeah. Uh, this is where music, especially classical musicians get it wrong a lot. So they think, okay, the way I put together a concert program is I pick music that I like. Mm. Well, yeah, but no, because maybe people don't want to listen to that. So if you know who you're trying to sell to and who you're trying to bring in, you need to ask the question, okay, what can I give them that I enjoy but that they're going to be prepared to pay for and some things they'll pay for more and some things less. And with concert series, you see this quite often where they'll sometimes book artists that they know just aren't going to sell that well because they love them, but for the most part, the season is full of people that they think are going to sell. And sure, they like them as well, but there might also be artists in there that they don't like, but it sells tickets. So you have to do the same thing where you say, okay, what do I need to play? What concept do I need to put around my concert program? Uh, how do I brand it so that the people I'm trying to sell this to are going to be interested in it? This thing of like, I'm playing music by Stravinsky and Tchaikovsky and blah, blah, blah. Yes, well, so is everyone. Hmm. That doesn't make it interesting. Give me a theme. Give me something to connect it and something to make it interesting. Once you have that identified, you know who you're selling it to. You can think, where do I reach those people? So, for instance, Facebook is becoming less and less relevant for younger audiences. For, for 35, 30 to 35 upwards, it's still quite interesting. There's still quite a lot of activity. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to reach younger audiences, Instagram is by far the best way to go for now as far as 
bang for your buck. So then you choose your channels based on that. And then what you want to do is not think about, I'm going to post one image and my concert is promoted. You want to think about a steady stream of content that you put out there, a series of uh, posts mm -hmm. that get people interested and engaged and involved. And then you want to have rat, you want to have ads running on an ongoing basis. Yeah. And you can have different kinds of ads as well, depending on how much time you have to set them up. But you definitely want to have at least one ad that's kind of permanently running. And how much do you think you should uh, spend on ads? Like what is a reasonable pricing? It really depends. Standard marketing budget for an organization is 10 to 20 percent of their total operating budget. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a total budget for your concert, then 10 to 20 percent of that should be uh, going towards your marketing efforts. With ads, you can save yourself a lot of money by learning how to actually use the different tools that Facebook offers for you to, to promote. There's also on. like, yeah, you can go in and, and find like these pages that says, okay, to reach this target, you can uh, post at this time. And there is also this kind of, like you can put in words and then you can see how much activity yeah. it's around these words. And if people who have like wrote articles about these kind of subjects or something, like for example, if I would make a concert for the International Women's Day, Maybe I will try to attach that concert to something bigger than just just on, not more than music. Well, th so that's yeah. the brand thing. So that's yeah. the, the why should I buy this? That's what the audience is asking. That's also connected to the price. Mm -hmm. So the more interesting the concert and the to topic, the higher you can put the price. The price is always related to what other people charge, though, and it's something you have to mess around with. But with Facebook, what I would do is very simple, basic strategy: is if you're going to get into Facebook and Instagram advertising there are something called custom and lookalike audiences. Mm -hmm. A custom audience is an audience that you can make within the, f the Facebook advertising platform, either advertising or the business platform. And it's a group of people that you've talked to in some way before. So you can make a custom audience out of people who like your page yep. or a custom audience out of people who have interacted with your page in the last X number of, I think it's uh, 180 days. Mm -hmm. The most valuable one is with what's called the Facebook pixel, a tracking pixel. Mm -hmm. So this is a little bit of code that you put onto your website. Every time visit, someone visits your website with Facebook open, Facebook mm -hmm. can see that and they put them into this audience yep. and then you can send ads to them. So that's what's called your captured audience um, with these custom audiences that you're building. These are people who are already interested in your stuff. When you send them information, because they already like you, they're going to be quite quick to buy tickets. Yeah. What you then want to do is over time, you know, over multiple concerts, you want to grow that ca that captive audience. So you want to do what's called prospecting. And prospecting is done by kind of being a bit creative and thinking, okay, what are things that my audience might also like? So for instance, with Jasmine Stich, we found mm. out that our audience is really interested in indie film mm -hmm. as well. Uh, they like indie film. They tend to be not so interested in classical music, but they're interested in theater they're interested in whiskey. Mm. And so we, with Facebook's advertising capabilities, you can select keywords and sort of preferences of people uh, in a particular region, region. And then you advertise to a group of people who have shown an interest in whiskey, for instance. Yeah. And then every time one of those people clicks on an ad or likes your page, that drops them into your captured audience and you can then send them you know, ads in That's the future. That's super smart. Yeah, it works very well. And what you want to do is you want to spend 20 to 40% of your budget on your captured audience mm -hmm. and the rest on your prospecting audience. Okay. And uh, know your audience seems like the keyword. Yeah. To know them, know yeah. who they are. Yeah. So not only want to <laughs> take them into your world, but also go into their world. Yeah, exactly. It's about, it's about building a relationship. So to have a relationship with someone, you need to have empathy for that person and you mm -hmm. need to be able to think about things from their perspective. And I think this is the key to being a good marketer. 
being able to put yourself into other people's shoes and think how are they going to perceive this mm. and then presenting that information in that way. So it's like, for instance, if you're talking to a kid, you're not going to explain things the same way to that kid as you would to me. Mm. You adjust the way you communicate to the audience that you're communicating to. And the same thing should happen with marketing and then also with everything else that happens around a concert, including the program and the way you play and the way you present yourself on stage. And also, I, I normally I talk a little bit when I do, a, or a little bit, I talk a lot when I do a concert because it calms me down and I Im, like I have this imagination that I think that the audience will forgive me if they mm. know me a little bit. Yeah. So if I make a mistake, they will be like, yeah, but I like her. That joke was funny, you know, or probably not. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> she like they will forgive me a little bit. But if I'm just quiet going in and playing like some people do, like super quiet going in, playing and then going out. I feel like, wow, I, um, of course they can hear my personality in my music, but it's not the easiest way of communicating yeah. with them. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and you still have people, especially in sort of Germany and France and, and to some degree Holland, mostly music students who are like, oh, that person's talking during the concert. What mm. are they doing? This is terrible. I didn't come here. I didn't pay to hear you talk. But you have to think of what's the purpose of music, you know, in general. The mm. purpose of music is to connect. People want to connect. They want to be part of it. That's why they come to a concert and they don't want to connect to some dead composer. They want to connect to you because if they want to connect to the dead composer, they go listen to a CD. Yeah. And so if the goal is to connect with you, then they want to see who you are, which means talking to them. So I think it's really good that you do that. And you can take that same approach and use it with social media as well, where you're not selling somebody playing Tchaikovsky because there's a billion people who can probably mm. play it. And there's hundreds of people who can play it better. What you're selling is you playing yeah. Tchaikovsky. Yeah. So people have to know who that is. And what is the most common uh, mistakes that people would do? Like, because my pedagogic teacher, he said, the most important thing is to know what not to do. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I'm trying to get out uh, also. What not to do. I mean, the biggest mistake that musicians make is not doing it. Mm. They have this idea that like, once I've found my sound and I mm. figured out who I am as an artist, then I'll start sharing what I'm doing, yeah. which is so stupid. It's like saying, I'm not going to practice until someone books me for a gig. No. <laughs> you, you like the process of putting yourself out in the world and marketing yourself is how you discover who you are yeah. and who you want to be. The real, I think, excuse that the underlying reason that people give this excuse is that they're afraid. Mm, fear of not being good enough. Uh, yeah, fear of not being good enough, fear of being rejected, fear of somebody seeing it and judging them. I mean, unfortunately, if you're in the music business to be accepted or liked, you probably should be in a bit different business, especially the classical music business. Mm. I think you have to figure out what is my motivation for doing this. If your motivation is that you think that the world needs more amazing, beautiful music and that people need more connection in their lives then it doesn't matter whether they reject you or not because you've got this big purpose that you're working towards. Mm. If you're doing it because like so many classical musicians, you're conditioned by your teachers and your parents to like win prizes and perform mm. well and you know get these sort of brownie points in the classical music world, then that's the wrong motivation. It gets too much like a sport instead yeah. of uh, art form. And uh, like I, I really like that you say that give something bigger to because that really changed my mentality when I was younger because for a lot of years I was playing cello for me only and then I expect people to listen to me because listen to me you know and then I was just asking to get something for other people but I didn't actually give something back to them yeah and then when I started to focus on giving instead of getting I got more than I ever got well when exactly. I was just focusing on myself too much and then I was like okay if I'm doing something for a, a bigger purpose then it's also 
I mean, okay, I failed this time, but it will be better next time. It becomes about the journey rather than the the result. Yeah, and I mean, if you do something that will give something to other people, you most likely, um, out of an entrepreneurship uh, perspective, you will have uh, a job. Yeah. Because if you do something that's, that people are lacking, they will buy it from you. Yeah. But if there is no need for you, there will not be so much work for you. Yeah, you're completely correct. It comes down to that relationship again. If you're in a relationship with someone and you only ask yourself the question, what can this person give for me? That's mm -hmm. a toxic relationship. Yeah. There has to be, I mean, there is some give and take that has to happen, but I think the healthiest way is often to approach it by saying, what can I give first? Mm -hmm. And then you also, you do have to look after yourself. You do have to make sure you're not giving so much that you, and, and not receiving enough in return that you become exhausted. You do also have to stay true to who you are and what you believe in. Um, but it starts with that question of what can I give? And this is the big shift that I think has happened in marketing overall, thanks to social media, where for the most part, organizations are no longer selling based on this is why we're better than the competition. They're selling based on this is who I am. I re I'm really excited about this and I want to use this to make your life better. Mm. And of course, there are lots of organizations that sell like that and don't actually make their li other people's lives better. But there are a lot of organizations that do. Yeah. Like Nike is maybe a good example and Reebok as well. These sports organizations say our goal is to get you to be more active, mm. to have adventures, to do it, just yeah. do it. And one of the ways we do that is by selling you shoes. But we also do that by all these other things, mm. apps for fitness. You've got events that we organize. Yeah. And I think for the most part, these organizations generally do, they really genuinely want to make that change in the world where they want to make people more active. And the way that they fund their, their mission to achieve that, the way they fund it is by selling stuff. Mm. But because they have this thing of this is who I am and this is what I care about and this is what I, what I want to give to you, they actually end up being more successful than if they've just said Nikes are better than Adidas because of these technical features. And also, um, uh, I saw some big change in the Axe, uh, you know, this perfume that yeah, guys yeah. have. They had this commercial, and normally when you see this commercial, I'm like, oh, you know, because they're super, super, super sexist. Like, normally when I was a kid, it was like a guy running uh, from a lot of women because they could smell him and they were like crazy for him, like, ah, running after him. And now I saw a new kind of commercial, like they did like, can a man do this? And then it was like a guy doing all this sensitive stuff, like yeah. can a man cry? Can a man have long hair? Like all this um, like kind of things that guys maybe think for themselves, but don't talk about. So it was like really sensitive kind of commercial. And I was like, wow, this is this company is really taking up on the society, at yeah. least in Sweden, because in Sweden, like is metrosexuality is really like in. Now, so there's no strict line between uh, what is female and male. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of hen and it, and yeah, we call it hen when it's not a girl, it's not a boy, it's just a hen. Yeah, so I thought maybe if you do commercials and you form things after the society a little bit, maybe they will be more likely to be liked. But where the where is the line between selling yourself and being yourself? What do you think? Because I think artists don't do this kind of marketing because I think it's dirty also. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, commercial thing. No, I'm just doing my art. Yeah, well, I, I agree. That's a really good question. That is may maybe the fundamental project problem that we have as artists. We don't like to think of our activities as a product. Mm -hmm. But, and you see this in the nonprofit sector as well. People don't like asking for money for stuff. Here's how I think about it. So money is a tool and not a goal. If money becomes a goal, then you have the problem that you're talking about. You're essentially just like a, an artistic prostitute mm. where you just, what, you'll do whatever it takes to just get money. Yeah. And you do see artists who do this and we all know. Mm. 
Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, uh, but if your goal isn't money and you look at money as a tool, then you recognize, okay, my goal is to make the world maybe more beautiful, to maybe get more people to fall in love with the cello. Mm. In order to do that, I need money because I need to pay for my ads. I need to pay for my concert venue, whatever. And the more money I can bring in, uh, the larger the scale is that I can make that change happen. Yeah. So it's a, it's about that intention. Why are you doing it? That's where the line is. That's really smart to think of it as as, as a tool. Yeah. I really like that. Because money in and of itself is not bad and is not dirty. Yeah. So why why would we think of it like that? It's the way you use it. It's our intention behind the way it's used that, that yeah. defines whether it is maybe bad or not. So out of the money that you earn for a concert, you take 20% out for marketing. Mm-hmm. And what do you do with the next, the rest? Is it like, do you have a good divide for us? Like, I mean, I always save a lot of money because I know that maybe I will like, I put out, out some money for the materials that mm-hmm. I have so I can buy my loop stations and shit. Yeah. And then I put some, okay, for the next fa- Facebook ads and, or when I have to pay my photographer to take a picture of me for the next concert or something. So do you have any like recommendations for us how to use the money that we earn for the concert? Because they, I think a lot of musicians are like, oh, I got a lot of money. Woohoo, let's go to the bar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, I think it's just planning. Yeah. Like, have a goal, have some kind of a... To plan, plan your economics but uh, and do your dreams. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, you know, if you've got a goal of in five years I want to be playing in this concert hall, mm. well, what are you going to need to make that happen and how are you, what are you investing in to make that happen? Yeah. I think the, there's a balance between, um, you want to spend enough to be able to enjoy your life a little bit because if you're miserable, mm. that also yeah. sucks. <laughs> um, so you want to be able to buy things that, you, that make you happy. Mm. At the same time, you also want to save a little bit to you know have some security for the future but you also want to be smart about not being so cheap and not saving so much that you don't invest in things in the future so for instance mm. let's say you need a new cello yeah. not buying that new cello would actually make your performances worse and would take you further away from reaching your goals rather than achieving it so it's better to spend the money on this thing that's going to make things better mm-hmm. paying for marketing is another thing like this i think education is a really valuable thing to invest mm. in and then Yeah, you take the rest, as you said, and you spend it on on yeah. the marketing side of your things. I think the way to think about marketing is it's like another band member. Yeah. It's a part of your ensemble. Yeah. That's the marketing. That's beautiful. But so I have read a lot of your blog posts. That's also something I wanted to talk to about, uh, talk about because they were really uh, amazing and really smart. So you have one about setting goals, for yeah. example, because a lot of people say, I don't know what I want to do. So how should we set the goals? Well, you should go to my blog post and read the the yeah, canvas that I made. Smart, uh, so the the canvas that I made it has five parts, mm-hmm. and basically, so for people who are interested in writing blogs and stuff, actually for creative people in general, don't underestimate the power of clever stealing of ideas. Mm-hmm. So um, I think effective creativity is uh, basically just borrowing ideas from different places and combining them in a way that other people can't tell where they came from. Yeah. And that's what this goal canvas that I made is uh, based on it's some of my own ideas combined with this guy called Zig Ziglar mm-hmm. it's like maybe one of the first motivational speakers like yeah. pre-Tony Robbins kind of and he talks about goal setting he's got some things and then Seth Godin's a marketing guy I really like who also has some stuff about goals so yeah. I took that and I put the goal canvas together and this is just for defining your goal Um, what the canvas looks like is in the middle, you define what is the goal. Describe it yeah. in as much specific detail as you can. Then on the top left, you have what happens 
if you fail, um, if I'm correct, remembering correctly. So drop blasted, what happens if you fail? And the reason you want to do this is most of the time people don't start because they're afraid of failure, but they're not too afraid of failing because most of the time failure isn't as bad as we think it is. Uh, it's just the unknown that we're afraid of because our brains are conditioned to be afraid of things we don't understand. So if you take the time in the goal canvas to work out what am I actually afraid of, it gets rid of that fear. Mm-hmm. So what that looks like is saying, okay, I want to play this concert. Let's say worst case scenario happens, I just screw up everything. Okay, that happens. What do I do then? Well, I'm probably going to cry. I'll feel embarrassed. Mm. Okay, well, then what happens then? Well, then maybe for a week or so, I'll be depressed and frustrated and I won't practice. Okay, well, then what happens then? Well, gradually I start practicing again. And then what happens then? Mm. Until you get to the point where you realize, actually, I just probably keep on going mostly the same as I did before. Uh, So that takes away the unknown and that takes away the fear. And then the right-hand side is what happens if I succeed? So what does success look like and what does it feel like? I think one of the key questions in there is also what does good enough look like? What is 80%? Mm. And then right underneath that is what do you refuse to compromise on? Mm. So what is good enough, but what are the things that still have to be in there for it to be considered good enough? I think it's amazing. Yeah. I think we really need this as musicians because a lot of musicians, uh, when I have mental training with them, they talk about what will happen if it goes wrong. And they they didn't even uh, imagine or even consider that it will actually go good yeah. because it's 50-50, you know, you don't know what will happen. It's 50% chance it will be shit or 50% it will be good. But yeah. they never even thought about if they succeed. Yeah. So when they succeed, they get like in shock. And like, they are not used to it because they never imagine it even. But that's because they make the goal the performance. Mm. The performance is just, it should be a step. This is something that we say quite a lot, progress, not perfect. Mm. So the, and good enough, I thought, is really... Yeah, exactly. The aim is progress. The aim is mm. not perfection because perfection is unachievable. Mm. And you'll just constantly beat yourself up. So as long as you did something that was better than yesterday, you've succeeded. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got the two last bits of the canvas, which is just intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So yeah. why from your own goals and dreams are you doing it? And then how is it going to benefit other people? And the bottom right, how is it going to benefit other people, I think is far more important than people realize. Yeah. So turns out... There's a lot of cool psychological research about this. If you frame a goal that you have in how it, as how it will benefit other people, you're far more likely to achieve it. So they took in this study two groups of smokers who wanted to mm. quit. And one group of smokers was told, okay, set the goal in the framework of I'm going to quit because this is how it will benefit me. Mm. Another group, they said, okay, set this goal in the framework of I'm going to quit because this is how it will benefit my children or my mm. wife or my friends. And the people who framed it in the perspective of how it benefits others were far more likely to actually quit. Yeah. Also, this pack psychology is coming in. Yeah. And then you want to do it even more because it's like a part of the animal in you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really a, a good uh, tip. I really like the good enough. I mean, because that's uh, that's a key word, I think, for a lot of people, good enough. And I mean, what makes me even more scared, like if I really want to scare someone, I say, okay, well, what if you never get a concert? Because then isn't it worse to do nothing, Yeah. to not have that concept, to not be scared, to not even have the possibility that scares me even more than failing. Because even if I fail in a concert, like it's only my own failure because most of my audience didn't even notice. Yeah. But not having that concert at all, that's really scary for me, at least. There's this amazing book called The War of Art. Do you know mm. it? No. You have to read not. it. It's basically like everything that goes on in your brain as a Mm. creative person that stops you from wanting to be creative. And the guy who wrote it talks about, uh, Stephen Pressfield's his name, Mm. he talks about 
procrastination being this incredible lie that we tell ourselves because if we were honest and we said okay so i'm gonna just never put anything online <laughs> then we'd be confronted with the, the horribleness of that statement but mm. instead what we tell ourselves is i'll do it tomorrow mm. but in reality if you do that enough you might as well just be honest and say i'm never gonna put it online like you said yeah. i'm never gonna play this concert if i don't force myself to do it yeah it's mental mus- muscles as well as uh, going to the gym yeah Um, we need we need both, and I think I mean in my opinion I think we should have more mental training uh, in the in our schools from yeah. the beginning because I said it before. But if we buy a dog, we read like so many books about dogs, but who actually knows anything about humans? Like, did you read the Homo sapiens book? You know, a yeah. lot of people have no clue what the humans actually how we work. Yeah. And people are like, oh, I'm going to learn this piano sonata by uh, by memory. I was like, but do you really know how the memory works? No, yeah. or I'm just going to do it 100 times. And it's like, yeah. okay, this is something that's, that, that <laughs> the sports world has figured out. Yeah, you know, it's very normal for a sports team to have a sports psychologist working with them. Yeah, and part of it is to do with money, but part of it is also to do with the education system, uh, the music world. I mean, most worlds could use this for sure the music world especially really really needs this and i think they need it not just because it would benefit and allow you to perform better and make your life better but also because a lot of people get i think severely psychologically damaged Mm. by the way especially the classical music world works and by the way teachers teach them Mm. and by the fact that there's no one there to tell them how to think in a healthy way about what they're doing yeah. uh, because you're putting yourself in like this very sort of psychologically high risk situation mm. where you go up on stage and you feel like there's a lot to lose and if people are constantly exposed to that and don't have the, the like you said the mental strength mm. to handle that and they don't have the like a, a healthy perspective on who they are that can really destroy them mm. i mean they did this research in the united states about what people are most afraid of on second place was death and then first place was to talk in front of other people yeah. so i mean uh it's like okay and and people are like oh I'm, why am i nervous and like wow <laughs> it's yeah. in, in nature and it's like quite normal when you put yourself out of the pack and yeah and then people say that they don't have money for it but you don't have money to put people in the psychology in the like at the psychology for because people don't go to the mental trainer before they they are super really down or really yeah. depressed or almost kill themselves then they go to a psychologist and like help yeah but that is, is a little bit like people don't go into the gym until they weigh uh, 150 kilos and i'm like yeah maybe you should have gone before yeah which is, you're completely correct and there's so much stuff that that is out there on physical health preventative behavior that's promoted but it's getting better but there really isn't that much around preventative behavior for mental health because the attitude tends to be i think and this is changing which is good but the attitude is just like okay well if you have a mental health issue it just means mm. your brain is kind of broken and you mm. were just born like that But I was talking to a friend who's a psychiatrist and he was describing, for instance, uh, somebody who's depressive, what basically happens in their brain is they're not able to judge the magnitude of a problem. Mm. So when something small happens, they see that as being just as bad as basically the world ending because mm. they haven't taught themselves to put boundaries around their thoughts. Yeah. Uh, there's a really good TED talk in, on this by some guy whose name I forget who talks about uh, mental hygiene. Oh, yeah. And it's especially musicians could really yeah. do such a, like they musicians have horrible mental hygiene where we tell ourselves things about ourselves mm. that if anybody ever said that to us in <laughs> real life, yeah. we would punch them. Yeah. But we allow ourselves to speak like that. Yeah, to ourselves. Yeah, within our, our own voice. brain. Yeah. And, and that is a choice. We have to, you have to send me that video and I will post it on the page. 
the massive music pitch. And you also made another blog post about, uh, was it should and want or... I think it was should and want. Yeah, should and must, was it? Should yeah. and must. Yeah. I really like that. I have a similar one. Yeah. But I say, instead of people say, I have to practice, they say, I want to practice. Yeah. Because it's less tension in want. Yeah. Because you want to practice. But again, it's, it's mental framing. It's yeah. learning how to program. Like your brain is a, a tool. It's a muscle. It's programmable and trainable. Mm-hmm. And learning how to frame things differently in your head so that you can you can learn. The should and must one is really cool. Um, it's based on a book called The Crossroads of Should and Must. It actually mm-hmm. started with an article. And the, the article is very cool to read. I think it's very, very important in general for anyone. Yeah, this idea of like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Uh, and am I doing it because I feel like people outside me expect this of me? Or do I actually want to do this? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I really liked your blog blog post about it also. I was like, oh my God. It's really, because I really consume a lot of this mental training stuff. And I was really like, oh, so the entrepreneurs are, are like naturally putting that in the part of their education. Like yeah in team academy so they are putting in the mental training in the business training which is like super smart i'm like that's also why i was well, really yeah <laughs> it makes complete sense so the the thing is who you what you do is a reflection of who you are and yeah. so if you want to change what you do you usually have to start inside so the way we think about it with team academy is you've got your operating system and that's your brain and that is for the most part just kind of fixed then you've got, uh, sorry, you've got your, your hardware, your mm. computer, that's fixed. Then you've got your operating system. And your operating system is mindset. And that's how do you think about the world? How do you see the world? And that's the lens through which you see everything. Mm. So if I give you lots of great knowledge, but you don't have the correct mindset to accept it, that knowledge is wasted. It really doesn't matter. The best example of this is if somebody gives you feedback, but you don't have the perspective that you want to learn rather than be accepted. Your mm. number one goal is to be accepted rather than to learn then that feedback is going to do more harm than good. Mm. Um, so you've got mindset and then you've got software. So this is your recording program that you're running. Mm. The f- software is the frameworks that you use for understanding a specific topic. So it's the knowledge, let's say, like what, what we just discussed about marketing. Mm. And then you've got the content that you create, the output from the software. And that's the skills. That's yeah. what can you actually practically do. And so many education organizations focus on the software, sometimes on the skills, almost never on the, the, the framework, on the operating system. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff that the students could have learned goes out the window. And if you think of just like the number of students who complain about procrastination, mm. part of that is to do with the fact that they're not really intrinsically motivated by the way the school system is set up to learn. But also imagine if you had at the beginning of your university course, uh, your university program, a week on, okay, how do you handle procrastination? How do you set goals? Mm. How do you train your brain to prioritize, you know, long-term gains rather than short-term gains? Mm. What, how different would that university program experience be? Mm. And how much uh, better result will they get? Exactly. You would learn so much more. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I question, because maybe I'm mean, but I say like, I mean, music history, you can mostly read the book yourself or Google it, but mental training, you really need someone to mirror you because it's hard to see the kind of habits you have yourself. You have have to have someone to look at you and say, okay, a mentor who can say, okay, Petrona, you're doing this. Is that what you want to do or not? And then you can make a a choice. (laughs) I completely agree. I think it's insane that people spend so much time learning music history. I think you should be given the overall frameworks, the overall understanding, the same thing with theory. Mm. And then if you want to go further in depth in that topic, that should be allowed. 
the like you're describing mental training understanding how to market yourself understanding the business aspect understanding how the music industry even works understanding the whole legal side of mm -hmm. the industry which is super important for musicians that should be far more important than music history and in general what you see in music programs is that the the music and business thing is one course yeah and the music history is every year of the entire program yeah i had two hours every week yeah and if you look at what actually helps you to become a success as a musician really tangibly mm -hmm. It's not music history, because you can learn how to interpret everything. <laughs> I know everything. where Beethoven lived. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know where Beethoven lived. You know how you're supposed to play a Baroque ornament. Great. Mm. That's really going to pay the bills. Yeah, it's a, it's really it's an old-fashioned perspective. I mean, yeah, yeah. The perspective is, and and it makes sense. The perspective was, the university is the place that knowledge is stored at, mm. and. If you want knowledge, that's where you have to go to get it. So the goal of the university is just to distribute the knowledge. Yeah. Well, we have the internet now. So the university doesn't exist to distribute the knowledge anymore because everything that everybody knows is just available at the tip of our fingers. So some guy talking to us at the front of a classroom is kind of redundant. Yeah. Uh, so how do you then shift? And that's what you're describing. The shift that you make is changing the operating system so you teach people This is how you find the information that you're interested in. This is how you judge whether information is good or not. And this is how you think about applying it to get the results that you want. And then go out and actually apply yeah. it. I think the Academy should have a, a teaching uh, filial <laughs> yeah. to teach teacher how to teach. Because not, I mean, it's the most important to teach a student is to teach them how to teach themselves so they can learn it by themselves. And that sounds for me what you're doing, which it really impresses me and inspires me a lot. I will try to use the same when I teach. So now I want you to give uh, a tips, a marketing tips or entrepreneur tips um, for musicians. I want you to give three tips that is most important. I know we maybe already said them, mm -hmm. but maybe like because you are from both worlds, you have one uh, leg in the music world as a guitarist. Uh, and I mean, you also won prizes and did a lot of achievement. And then you have the other legs in the business world, which I mean, I think Maastricht has to thank you a lot for a lot of things that you did. You just came in like a wind and, and made it happen. Not sure about that. I think a lot of <laughs> other people did things too. Yeah, but I mean... What what I have seen is uh, like really incredible in my opinion. So oh, you. then you can think what you want and have your own opinion. So three tips. Three tips. Um, the best of Peter Powell. Oh my gosh. The first <laughs> tip is just do it. Mm. Actually just do it. Stop making excuses. Stop complaining. Put something into the world that's real mm -hmm. and that you created and that you care about and get in the habit of doing that consistently. Mm -hmm. The second thing which is related to that is care more about the journey than the results and make it about progress every day better than yesterday not better than other people not better than you know who you want to be in the future just better than yesterday mm -hmm. and then oof, last but not least i think learn have a learning mindset mm -hmm. always seek to learn there's so much information and knowledge out there like all this marketing stuff And all the ideas that I have in my brain and the, the blog posts, all that comes from is just reading stuff that other people wrote mm. and just spitting it out in my own particular way. But there's so much knowledge out there. Get Figure out what are the habits that you need to build. How do you build good habits to learn consistently? How do you build a mindset that helps you learn consistently? And how do you train yourself to be more hungry to learn than afraid of failure or criticism? To be brave and be curious. Be curious. Yeah, yeah. this is... That that would have been a better way of phrasing it. No, I liked yours as well. There's some some Einstein quote about curiosity. 
yeah. I have actually your favorite quotes here. Oh. From Facebook. Oh. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That's, that's like from me when I was 17. I don't know if that was still a thing. From 17? You don't, don't think they are valid are they anymore? But I think one here. You I can like. read them and then if they're, if they're not valid, I'll give you some other ones. A good composer doesn't imitate. He steals. <laughs> yes. That one's still valid. <laughs> I think you, you still can stand for that one. I have a lot of common sense. I just choose not to use it. That's a terrible one. That's a very 17-year-old me. Love it. I should do this more. This is from Cabernet Hobbs. Stalk people on Facebook. (laughs) Why waste time learning when ignorance is instantaneous? Instantaneous, yeah. This This is more ironic. I think this is the way a lot of people go through life. Okay, and this one, uh, to write a symphony is for me a construct of a world. Mahler said this. Yeah. That's nice. That's a nice Construct your own world with your company and with your music and your art. Yeah, I just want to thank you so much for everything. And we got so much good stuff. I'm going to listen to this so many times. And I hope that I can invite your wife to come to us. Sure. Uh, Michelle. Yeah. She's a lovely pianist. I will ask And also her. an entrepreneur, a little bit. Uh, yeah, she has uh, her own concert Culture and entrepreneur, I would say. Yeah. And she has a concert uh, series called Opus 16, yeah. if I'm not right. Uh, yeah. I'm right, yeah. Which is really great that we can check out. And where can we follow you? Oof. You can follow me, teamacademy.nl mm-hmm. is the website for the education. Um, and you have and some open days there that we can check out if someone is interested in yes, getting... I think we've got one on May 4th. So uh, April twenty sixth, we have a boot camp. That's uh, too soon. It's next week. Yeah, that's <laughs> no, two weeks from now. Oh, two weeks. Okay. Okay. So April twenty sixth is a boot camp, which is like a one day entrepreneurship experience. Then we've got May fourteenth and open doors, and then end of May again another boot camp. And maybe a summer camp. And definitely a summer camp. Yeah, We're starting a, a summer yeah. coding camp that will be uh, the second week of June. And if you want to learn to make an app, but you mm-hmm. don't want to attend a boring oh. course then uh, basically it's one week you learn how to use a framework to build an app. Mm. So it like, takes less time than actually learning how to code from scratch. And what you're going to do is you're going to pick a problem that you have in your life and design an app to help you solve that problem. Amazing. It's called Angry Nerds. That's good. If you search uh, Angry Nerds Coding. Angry Nerds Coding. I'm, I'm sure. dyslectic, so I cannot spell but uh, there's already apps for that. <laughs> yeah, perfect. That's it. Someone you maybe have noticed on my text. <laughs> Oopsie. <laughs> so that's great. And uh, you can always write you huh? on your yep. email maybe. People um, have questions. The best thing to do is you can reach me if you go to the Maastricht at teamacademy.nl. Mm-hmm. That email address goes to me. Yep. If you want, you can also follow me on Medium. Yep. Um, or add me on LinkedIn then you can message me there as well yeah thank you so much for coming and sharing everything we will follow this developing with excitement and we will use all your tips so now Masters is going to be a bomb of all musicians <laughs> taking care no more shitty posters <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me it was fun yeah thank you Master.